0: So as we come back to Psalm 8 this morning, just a few reminders for those of you who weren't here last week with regards to the Psalms. Firstly, the Psalms are not simply or merely a collection of songs. That the order the the sequence of the Psalms is as significant in this book as it is in Ephesians or Romans or any other. We've shown that consistently in our going through the Psalms and we're going to see it yet again this morning. The foundation of all 150 Psalms are the first two. They are absolutely categorically the foundation of the book and everything else builds upon that foundation. But in addition, there are a couple of other passages that are foundational to everything within the Psalms. Firstly, the Davidic covenant found in Second uh, Samuel 7 and First Chronicles. The idea that we have these two parallel passages that speak, and, and, and I disagree with some on this. I don't think that, it, that there's any parallelism within each passage. I think one is about Solomon and one is about Christ. But they're so similar in their wording that the connection between David and his immediate son, and the king and the descendant who is to come, is brought together, that throughout the book of Psalms, there's this constant parallelism, that is just there, everywhere, that here the psalm is speaking of God's anointed king, David, and yet at the same time, it's speaking of the son of David, God's final anointed king who is to come. And the other passage that is absolutely foundational to our understanding of the book of Psalms that we've seen reference to pretty much in in almost every one so far is Genesis 3. And the fall of man and the subsequent curse and the blessings and promises contained within it, we seem to find that continually in the book of Psalms and today will be no exception. So... With that as a little way of background for those who weren't here for the previous Psalms or weren't here last week when I reintroduced. That's a very brief intro, and now we'll dig in. So as we do with the Psalms, let's start with verse zero. Um, there is a superscription, it's not given a verse in English, though it is in Hebrew, um, but it is nonetheless inspired. My ESV here, like most versions, says to the choir master. We dealt with this in depth when it first came up, um, but I will just repeat it now. The the literal rendering is the preeminent one, the most exalted one. Because so many of the superscriptions are musical in nature it is generally presumed that it means the preeminent one in a musical sense, hence the choir master. Um, it's Jim Hamilton who has suggested, or at least that's where I came across the suggestion, I don't see it in any other commentary I've been referencing, but um, he has suggested that the preeminent one is in the context of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the foundation, which is all about Christ, that we couldn't really consider the preeminent one to be anything other than Jesus. And if we accept that hypothesis, then what we should see is that each time a psalm says to the preeminent one, that it should be a psalm that is specifically and distinctively more pointedly messianic and pointing to Jesus, and we've seen it every time so far. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to pretend I've checked all 150 on this point. But so far, so good. And so I'm going to continue to work on that hypothesis and think that when we're told it's to the preeminent one, that we should be spotting, looking. And even if it does refer to a choir master, perhaps there's some sort of double duty, double entendre here in that regard. I'm certainly expecting to see messianic focus and implications. If you want as much understanding on uh, on the the gittith, then you're going to be solely disappointed. Here, nowhere else, nobody really has much of a clue. Um, the new American, uh, sorry, the new King James version um, uses the uh, the Jewish targums commentaries to get some insight here, and references it to, um, to or translates it rather as an instrument of gath. Which links to Goliath, which may well um, here in this Davidic psalm be uh, be uh, accurate, but we don't we're not really sure. It may well just simply be a musical terminology. So then we come to verse one: "O Lord, our Lord," literally "O Yahweh, our Adonai." We've said this so many times in various books over the years. Um, but one more little reminder, when we see Lord in the Old Testament, when it's in capital letters, it is a translation of uh, the name of God, or a representation, more accurately, of the name of God, Yahweh, and, and with that name doesn't merely come as some sort of appellation, this is this is how we refer to him, but rather it is it is, you know, Exodus 33 and 34 associated with his name is his glory and all of his attributes. And we've seen that multiple times in these early Psalms already, that the name of God, Yahweh, is used to point to specifically his covenant-keeping love, but it's other attributes as well. Saw that last Sunday in Psalm 7. And when you see Lord without the capital letters, then it is Adonai, the Hebrew word that simply means Lord. And so here we have Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh our Lord, how majestic, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see how Yahweh is connected with his name? Again, a name is speaking of his attributes and who he is. David is, is glorying in the majesty of who God is. The character of God, his attributes, who he is, that is what he is delighting in. There's nothing magical or special about the letters or the, or the word. It, 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 is, it is who he is that David is meditating upon. And that becomes clear as we conclude the first verse when it says you have set your glories above the heavens. You've set your glories Uh, um, Your glory above the heavens. Interestingly here, this is actually an imperative. It literally says, put your majesty, splendor. I don't like the translation glory here, because the word glory has been used by David in these early Psalms to tell a particular story, to create links to the other Psalms where he's previously used them. And it's not actually the same word for glory here. So I prefer to use the term splendor you get a similar idea with that but it's a command put your splendor above the heavens what on earth does that mean then David saying lord yahweh put your splendor so I can't lift my arms put your splendor above the heavens this is going to be difficult because i'm going to get animated and it's, it's an exciting passage um put your splendor above the heavens well if we go ahead a little bit We'll notice that there is much focus here on the heavenly realms. There is something that the Septuagint translates as angels and, and Hebrews follows, the book of Hebrews follows suit. That here, the Hebrew word is Elohim, the word for gods. And there are these heavenly beings that are being referenced. So if we can allow that little glimpse ahead, it seems to me that what it's saying Is, may your splendor be, be recognized to stand above everything in creation. The heavens, the earth, the moon, the stars, and all of the spiritual beings that dwell in that unseen realm. May your splendor rise above it all. In other words, show your glory. Show yourself to be glorified. Declare your majesty. The context and the reason for that is going to become clear as we move on. Let me just say before I move to verse 2, it's interesting that just as the psalm begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, it ends with, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Clearly, the central theme as an inclusio bookends, holding the psalm together. But what is interesting is something very similar ended psalm 7 i will sing praise to the name of yahweh most high oh literally i will psalm to the name of, of yahweh most high again a reference to the name a mention of the name and then psalm 9 begins verse 1 verse 2 i will be glad and exalting you i will sing praise i will psalm to your name O most high seems that there is this structure putting the psalms together psalm 7 ends Psalm 8 is sandwiched, Psalm 9 begins. Again, get this in your heads, friends. Every psalm is in the sequence that God ordained it to be in. Again, we'll see more of that in a minute. So verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and um, infants, toddlers would be how we would say at least in England, you have established strength, or might, because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. Now this is a sort of poetic approach to dealing with a, a concept that we're well aware of. Certainly those of you who were going through Isaiah with me in the evenings will be very familiar with. We know it from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27, the idea that God uses the weak of this world to shame the strong. And that general theme is clearly here that out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established your strength. We have here, and there's obviously more to this, but we have here also the two words that we've seen repeatedly in the previous psalms. The word translated here foes or um, more typically adversaries and also the word enemy, the one who uh, that he is at enmity with the enemy enmity word implies more sort of being opposed to hatred so to speak the the word for hate is in a similar root Um, the adversaries are the the ones who are fighting against now again for those who haven't been here there seem to be three key themes in the Psalms some of them are fairly obvious The, the glorification of the name of God and the word of God is one the, the, the anointed king, obviously, central theme throughout the Psalms. But the one that's often missed is the enemies of God. Central theme to, to the Psalms. Grounded there at the beginning in Psalm 2, so very clearly. Hinted at in Psalm 1, that the way of the wicked will come to an end, but very, very clear in Psalm 2. The enemies of God will be defeated. And so in Psalm 1, we have the righteous man who we get to eventually see as Christ through links to Deuteronomy 17. Go back and listen to that again if you haven't. It was one of my better moments. Um, Psalm 2 then makes it very clear that this one from Psalm 1 is the anointed one, the king who is to come. Kiss the son lest he be angry. And it ends as Psalm 1 begins, Book bookending those two psalms together. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Blessed are all who take refuge in him, him being that man. So we have all of that in Psalm in Psalm 1. Uh, uh, Psalm 1 and 2. When we came to Psalm 3, we see the enemies of God, the ones who want to break the bonds, Psalm 2, the ones who want to be free of God's regulations the ones that God laughs at from the heavens, the ones that will ultimately be placed under Christ's feet, we see the outworking of the enemies of God in Psalm 3 with David's conflict with his own son Absalom. It's quite a shocker if you think about it. There's these kind of enemies, kings, whoever they are, and then we have the real nitty-gritty reality where the first example in the very next psalm is David's own son. My wife and I say this very often to each other in this current time. Satan doesn't play fair. Thank goodness for the sovereignty of God that restrains him. Because because it's one thing to say, oh yeah, there'll be enemies, there'll be these kings. And then it's your own son. That's brutal. And as we go through Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, 7... We've been dealing repeatedly with these, the outworking of Psalms 1 and 2 and the adversaries, the enemies of God. And here the declaration is that it is from the mouth of babies and infants, we're going to come back to that, that God has established his might. From the weakness comes strength. And this happens because of the foes, all of these adversaries that we've been referencing in the previous Psalms. You know, you'll see those in chapter three, verse one; chapter six, verse seven. Last week we saw it in verse four and verse seven of Psalm seven. They're constantly there to cause the enemy, the one at enmity, and the avenger to cease, to still cause him to cease. It's very interesting that the adversaries are plural; would we'll always have many, many adversaries, always but there's one enemy. And it's, it seems to me that what David is doing here is pointing us to Psalm 3. I think this will become clearer as we go on. Uh, sorry, to Psalm 3. To Genesis 3. My, my apologies. He's pointing us to Genesis 3 because there's a reference to babies and infants, and I think that's Genesis 3. I think that he's taking us to the early chapters of Genesis because he's going to speak in a moment of Genesis chapter 1 and the dominion that was given to mankind. And he's speaking of the enemy, that single enemy who will one day have his skull crushed and will be defeated. How will he be defeated? By the seed of the woman. He will be defeated by the seed of the woman. Adam and Eve sinned. They knew what the price was for that sin and the price was death. And so in the midst of the curse, as we typically call it in Genesis 3, there must have been a great sense of relief that came with the expression, seed of the woman. Because if nothing else, and there was a lot more than this, but if nothing else it said that their death wouldn't be imminent, that there would be offspring, that the human race would continue. Now I could easily get distracted here. I was thinking about taking two weeks over this psalm, but I'm not going to. But there's so much background here, and I do genuinely believe that Satan's intention in the garden was to bring to an end mankind who had been given dominion over the world that was created prior to man. And there was perhaps, and I'm certainly, I'm just guessing here to some degree. There perhaps would have been a presumption of angelic dominion prior to the creation of man. And the man was the one taking over. Man was the one that was receiving glory and power and dominion. We'll see those phrases used in a moment. And man is the one that was the problem that had to be removed. And I think Satan, in getting them to sin, thought he'd accomplished their death... And that that would be immediate. Wouldn't be the first time he's been. Wouldn't be the last time he would be wrong. With his plans and his schemes. So, when the seed of a woman phrase is used, we now know that Adam and Eve are going to have children. We now know that there's going to be offspring. We now know that the human race is going to continue. We now know that there are going to be babies and infants. We'll come back to this as the text prompts us to do so. But nonetheless, through the seed of the woman and the seeds, plural in addition, through this continuing of humankind, God will establish strength. He will use this to glorify himself by defeating his adversaries and the threat of the one great enemy will come to an end. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So so we're looking out on creation. Now we know this, and again I could get distracted, but we know from Romans 1 that every single person on this planet, apart from Christ, stands under the wrath of God because God through creation has revealed all that is necessary for us to be condemned. Because we all see enough to know that there is A, a God, and B, that he's powerful. We all know enough. And every man, therefore, is rightfully condemned. Creation stands and declares, as we will see later in the Psalms, the handiwork of God. And so there, Genesis 1, creation, we're being pointed to. We see the creation in the heavens. Now, again, oops, pardon me. It, it, the word heavens is used in the Hebrew thinking of what we would call space, of what we would call the sky, and of what we would refer to as the angelic realm or the unseen realm. It does all these various duties, and this, this connection is being used by David here. He's pointing to the literal stars, moon, that the heavens in that sense, but there is this underlying current of the heavenly beings that we're going to come to in a moment. And it's in light of that creation that declares the majesty of God, that shows the power of God, that shows how how awesome and majestic and wonderful and powerful he is, that then the key question comes in. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man. That you care for him. Now I know, I know what you want to do at this point. You've just seen son of man. Now you're three steps ahead. You're, you're all the way to Jesus. And, and I've given you, I've given you a basis to do so because I've already pointed you to Genesis three and mentioned the seed of the woman. We're going there, but it's very important that we let the scripture take us there at its own pace. We don't want to jump from one to four. We've got to go through the gears gradually. Most of you have never driven manual. You don't know that. But that's what you need to do. To go through the gears gradually. So let's do so. At first glance, what we have here is we have the majesty and the power of God, and then we have us, these weak, frail human beings. Sure, in a sense, we are the babies and the infants. There is poetic license here in the Psalms, and we are weak and we are nothing and we are of no significance, aside and apart from God, who chooses to use us, that by using the weak, his strength will be seen and he will be glorified ever more greatly. We understand this, okay? Okay and here he is saying in light of this what is it about man that you are mindful of him the son of man that you would care of him now this is where we have to look at the details Hebrew has various different words for man when it says here what is man that you are mindful of him the word used is Enosh now Enosh if you didn't know is the son of Seth the grandson of Of Adam. And just as the word Adam, Adam means man, the word Adam is used in Hebrew just not to refer to literally Adam, but to just refer to mankind. So the name Enosh seems to have been used in a similar way. That the name Enosh, Adam's grandson, through the line of Seth, why is he significant? Because of the whole Cain and Abel thing. And the line has to go through Seth and now on to Enosh. And because of Enosh being, um, being that significant, the line of Seth, the line continuing, the promise continuing, more seeds appearing. Because of that, it seems to have been taken up as just a word that is used to reference man. So, literally, what is Enosh, that you are mindful of him, and the son of man. Now here we have a different word for man. We have Adam. The son of Adam that you care for him. So in, in one failed swoop, by using two different words, we've referenced three people. Adam, the son of Adam, Seth, in context, and Enosh. So what's David doing here with this clever wording? Because he could have used different words. He could have used the same word for man. What's he doing? He's pointing us to Genesis 3, and he's pointing us to the continuity of the line that, as we know, Psalm 1 and 2, that's our foundation, is going to ultimately lead down the line to the anointed king that will have a kingdom that will never end. That's what we're going. He's pointing us to Genesis 3. So with, I hope all these little clues are coming together. And you can see that there is a Genesis 3 theme underlying this. And so there is this question about mankind and that we see here the frailty, the weakness, the, uh, the lowness, as it were, of mankind in context to the glory of God shown, declared, In the heavens. We're going to come back. Verse 5. Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, this is difficult. I'm not going to pretend it's not, and I'm not going to pretend we're all going to agree on this. I wrestled with this at length when we were teaching through Hebrews a few years ago. I had to re watch my sermons on Hebrews 2. It was Very painful, mostly because I was much slimmer in those days. But I got through it and I, and I, and I, and and I'm kind of fresh with what I was, in my mind with what I was saying then. And I don't think I disagree with what I said then. I think I'm sticking with it. But, but it isn't an easy passage. Let me just say that from the off. Okay? And part of the problem here is that the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament in Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 is quoting Psalm 8. Now just to throw into the mix here, every single time that the New Testament quotes Psalm 8, which it does multiple times, it also in the near context quotes Psalm 110. The two are inextricably inextricably linked together. We haven't got to Psalm 110 yet, but we're talking about Christ being glorified and his enemies being placed under his feet. Okay, These two are always linked together. In addition, Hebrews quotes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And in doing so, it translates Elohim, heavenly beings, literally gods, specifically as Angelos, angels. That's issue one. The second one is it takes this little lower, which could originally be understood either way, but seems to mean a little bit below... And it uses it to mean for a little period of time. Now I don't think that the writer of Hebrews is is adjusting sarmate. I think he understands Psalm 8 clearly far better than I do, probably far better than any of us. And I think that there is an allowance in the rendering of Psalm 8 for the little lower to speak either of status or of time. And the author of Hebrews is focusing on the time because that's what he's picking up on his argument. So there's all of that background that makes it very difficult. But let me say this clearly. Regulars will know I say this a lot. It's very important that we don't go to Hebrews, say, ah, that's what Psalm 8 means, and read it back into Psalm 8. We need to let Psalm 8 speak for itself. Then we go and check the New Testament. And if the New Testament writer completely disagrees with this, perhaps we've got to go back and look at our work. But we need to let the Old Testament speak for itself. So, as we look at this here, it says you've made him a little lower than the Elohim. Now the the Christian Standard Bible, formerly the Holman Christian Standard, bizarrely and uniquely translates this, you made us a little lower than God. A little lower than God. Because obviously, Elohim, although it's plural, three quarters of the time refers to God. I I think that's completely wrong. Am I a little lower than God? My goodness. I'm, I'm I'm, I'm a far more than a little lower than God. I'm a lot, 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 lot times infinity lower than God. So I'm really not happy with that understanding of it. And clearly because the Septuagint and the writer of Hebrews understands Elohim here to be one of the... 25% of times in the Old Testament, it refers to angelic beings as opposed to God Himself. Then I'm happy to understand it that way. So what it's saying is, you've placed man, why are you mindful of Him? He's even lower than the angels. Now here's the bit that's tricky. Has man always been lower than the angels? Or, remember? referencing Genesis 3 again and again and again, did man become lower than the angels at the time of the fall? Now, we're not all going to agree on this. I tentatively, and I emphasize that, hold to the view, and I suspect I'm using Hebrews a little more than perhaps I should at this point, I tentatively hold to the view that it is referencing the fall of man. The fall of man. In which case, God creates man and he creates man in glory. He creates man sinless. He creates man and gives him dominion. We'll be back to this in a few weeks time when we talk about authority and Caesar and all of this. And we we start with God having all authority. And, and you see this in verse 6, 7, and 8. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the beasts of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. There is this emphasis in the latter part of the psalm on the, 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 the dominion and the responsibility that man was given. The angels weren't given this responsibility. This is what the author of Hebrews picks up on. We should turn there in a moment. But that the author of Hebrews picks up on. He picks up on this fact that the angels were never given this responsibility. This is something that man was given. Man, and, 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 I, and I, I, I kind of skimmed over it, but <clears throat> notice in verse 5, You made him lower than the heavenly beings, and you crowned him with glory and honor. We see glory, honor, and dominion associated with man in contrast to the angels. Yes, we're going to Jesus, I'm getting there, but let's go through the gears. Man was given glory, man was given honor, and man was given dominion. The glory and honor are mentioned first, they normally go together. The glory and honor are mentioned first, then we have the reference to man being a little lower and then we have dominion my again tentative thinking in a very difficult passage is that mankind had glory and honor when first created the fall kicked us a little bit lower than the angels for this period of time but dominion over the earth still remains that's my thinking I may be wrong honestly this is very difficult we'll look at Hebrews in a moment but if that's the case, then what it's saying is, is that God is still mindful of a man who has fallen. God still cares for us, though we sin. So let's not, let's not lose, in all the technical details here, a very important and, and encouraging theological application. Which is this, that though we have fallen, though we are lower than the angels, though the glory that God gave us has been tainted by sin, he still cares and he's still mindful. He's not finished with mankind. He's not finished with mankind. And that is very, very clear. And it is that wonderment that leads to the closing inclusio. Oh Yahweh our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice that that phrase alone is repeated, not the second half of verse 1 which references the heavens. Because we have, we have shifted in our focus from the heavens, God you're so majestic, look what you've done in the heavens, and he goes through and talks about man, and even though man has fallen, God has not finished with man. God's plans for man has not ended. Adam and Eve sin, death is the result of that sin. And yet there is going to be a seed of the woman. Yet there will be a continuation of the human race. The death will not be immediate, the human race is not over. There is this continuation. Why would you do that, God? Why would you do that? You are going to glorify yourself. You are going to show your... And David knows the answer, he's telling us. You're going to show your might over your adversaries. You're going to bring to an end your enemy... And you're going to do so through these babies and infants that are born. I mean, I look pretty pathetic right now. I feel pretty pathetic after my accident. But I was a lot more pathetic when I was first born. I couldn't do anything. My mother had to nurse me, feed me, wipe me, clean me, wash me, do everything for me. I was useless. And there we are in the world. And even then, God had a purpose. Even then, God knew that I'd be teaching Psalm 8 this day even then why would you do such a thing God take these these weak fallen fragile broken people and use them to glorify yourself well that that question answered multiple times in the New Testament but there's one passage in particular that we need to turn to when we're dealing with Psalm 8 and that is Hebrews 2 so let's turn to Hebrews 2 um Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews 1, those of you not familiar, the writer is dealing with the fact that that Jesus Christ is supreme over the angelic realm. I think for most of us as Christians today, that's something that kind of goes without saying. Um... If you coming out of Bethel and the new apostolic reform movement, maybe you need it said more clearly. But Jesus is supreme over the angelic realm. And as we come out through that, he argues from the Old Testament. If you're looking at your Bible now, I hope you're in Hebrews 1 now. You, you, in my version, and I'm, I've got an ESV here, and in the way it's typeset, you can see again and again and again that he's quoting. Multiple Old Testament quotations. Um, the significant ones in verse uh, 8 but of the son he says and this is Psalm 110 as I say is always linked to Psalm 8 your throne O God is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness and the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions there's so much there and I and again it would be so easy to get distracted by Psalm 110 Um, there are are very significant Genesis 3 connections to Psalm 110 as well but let me just point out one thing that is clear Um, that God is being referenced your throne O God is forever therefore God your God so there is God who has a God if anybody tells you That the deity of Christ is an invention of the church in the second, third, fourth century. And they say to you, it's not a New Testament concept. They're half right. It's not a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament concept. We saw it routinely in the book of Isaiah. The idea that there is this one, this seed of the woman, who is going to be God's anointed king, born of a virgin, Who is both man and God. This is an Old Testament concept again and again. And it talks about God laying the foundations of the world. We have Psalm 110 again in verse 13. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's the Genesis 3 there because the enemy will be crushed under his feet. Genesis 3.15. But nonetheless, here we go. Verse 14 are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation the angels are there to serve those who are going to inherit salvation that's us that's part of the reason why I think that we were created above the angels with glory, honor, and dominion but through the fall we are for a while a little lower than the angels And they are to minister to us who inherit salvation. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 2. We must pay close attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The angels are punished, we will be too. It was declared at first by the Lord, as it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So we now have in context, god giving believers those who inherit salvation man you're mindful of him you are giving; he's giving us his holy spirit because that is how god uses us who are weak to show his strength not because of us but because of his spirit in us that's part of our context now it was not to angels that god subjected the world to come he specifically says they didn't get dominion it has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, no less. What is man that you are mindful of him, of a son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while, lower than the angels. Notice how Hebrews translates it in the form of time, because that's what the Septuagint does. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now notice, in Psalm 8, it doesn't say that. It says that you've been made a little lower, a little bit lower, lower for a time. It says that he's been crowned with glory and honor. It says that. But the putting everything in subjection under his feet is conflating Psalm 8 with Psalm 110 earlier. The writer to Hebrews is doing something very deliberate here. Something very deliberate. There is a period of time where man will be lower Man who was given glory and honor and dominion. And then there will be one man... Who will be given again... Glory, honor and dominion. He has it now. But we don't see it. That's what he tells us next. Now putting everything in subjection to him... He left nothing outside his control. This is Christ. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone that is, that is a stunning statement he's applying Psalm 8 to Christ and he's saying and he says it clearly that Christ has been made a little lower than the angels what on earth does that mean it means this that as Paul speaks of in Philippians 2, that Christ, who is emptied of his glory, and descends, not just to becoming a man, but to dying, even on a cross, that 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 descent, that descent in humility, has placed Christ lower than the angels. The angels will never die. The fallen angels will be judged. But they won't experience death in the sense that we do. That Christ, in becoming man, and this is crucial in being associated with sinful man in taking the sin of man upon himself in God the father separating himself in some way shape or form we don't fully understand from the son because of that sin that he who knew no sin became sin for our sakes that we might become the righteousness of God that Christ in some way became lower than the angels... through his association with sinful man. Why? Because he's going to, by the grace of God... taste death for everyone. He is lower for a little while... and he's going to be crowned with glory and honor... because of that death. That's what it says in verse 9. And because of that death... because of that humiliation... Because of that, Philippians 2, therefore God highly exalted him. One day, friends, we will see the subjection of all things under Christ. They are subjected to him. Right now. That's very clear. Colossians 1. That the the entire universe is sustained and held by and in the control of Christ. But you wouldn't know it looking at it. We have evil kings and evil rulers. We have adversities, adversaries, rather, foes. We have one who is at enmity with us, who is called in John 12, the ruler of this earth. You would be forgiven, perhaps, for looking at the world and saying, all things under his subjection? I just don't see it. But it's true. And one day you will see it. And on that day, you will not just see it for that day, but you will see, aha, he had it all along and he worked all things for his glory. So how does this connect with Psalm 8? God created man, gave him glory and honor and dominion. Man fell and he'd lost his position. He became lower than the angels for a period of time. And then there is the Word of God, who is God, distinct from the Father, who at a point in time, John 1.14, the Word became flesh. And he becomes man and becomes, though he is without sin, associated with sinful man. And there on the cross, the sin of the world, our sin, my sin, your sin, the sin of all who believe, are put upon him so that he becomes sin for our sakes. And he is able to be declared lower than the angels that he creates because of his association with sinners like us. But he does so that through that death, Through that death, not despite it, but through it, that God is able to highly exalt him because he conquers not just Satan, but the final enemies of sin and death. And in doing so, we will be able to see one day all things under his subjection. They are, but one day it will be seen. In other words, to return to Psalm 8... God's plan with man has not changed. God's purpose for man has not changed. But there is one man who will succeed where we have failed. There is one man whose strength will cover our weakness. There is one man, Christ Jesus, who God will accomplish his purposes through. Praise him. And so, in closing today, is it not appropriate for us to echo what David has said? Oh Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, you who are sovereign and in control. How majestic is your name in all the earth. One last little thing. As we, like David, glory in what God has done in creating and taking man, making his son take on human flesh, that he might save us, redeem us, bring us salvation, glorify us. There is one last connection in the Psalms I want us to bring. When he says, how majestic is your name in all the earth, the only time the word earth is referenced previously in the Psalms takes us back to one of those foundational Psalms. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together. Uh, Sorry, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Against Yahweh, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. Verse 4 He who sits in the heavens. We've seen that, haven't we as well, in this Psalm. He sits in the heavens. How majestic is your name? You created the heavens. He laughs, holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury. As for me, he will say, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And Here we go. And the ends of the earth, your possession. How majestic is your name in all the earth? It's your earth and you will give it to the son. Everything will be subject to him and he will be glorified. And we, who are redeemed, will enjoy the kingdom with him. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we close the message today that there will be blessing and encouragement from that text. Lord, I feel I've compressed, edited, said so little. And yet compressed so much and lord i just pray that despite me and my failings and my frailties that you would use this message day today to encourage to uplift and above all else to glorify your son we live in this world lord this world where we don't see clearly at first glance that everything is under subjection to christ that he is sovereign over it all there are foes and adversaries Operating to the desire of the one that we are at enmity with, but there are promises, promises kept according to your name, covenant keeping love, and you will one day make clear that subjection, you will one day crush your enemies you will one day place everything under his feet may we be people of faith people who trust you and people who trust in your sovereignty now when things are unclear knowing that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible irremovable a living hope that can never be taken away. Father, thank you that you are mindful of us. Thank you that our eyes will one day see clearly all things in subjection to your glorified Son. May we live now in the assurance of that coming reality. Amen.